Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can use in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Prepare to hear, to hear a very insightful and inspiring voice from Africa today. My first interviewee from Africa, in fact, from Guinea, to be more specific, Bintu Kamara. Bintu is a sustainability specialist and a social change activist, founder of a regional NGO that promotes sustainable development on islands and villages impacted by mining activities in Guinea. She also manages a design office specialized in the study and implementation of sustainable development projects for mining companies. She is currently working on a cultural heritage sustainability project through the preservation of endangered indigenous language and spirituality in the mining region of Bokeh, in partnership with American non-profit Wikitong and Living Tongues. We will be learning and discovering about bauxite, which is a raw material of aluminium, mining operations in Bokeh region in Guinea, and the environmental and social risks associated with it. Language and spirituality preservation and the context of Guinea from a sustainability perspective as a whole. This interview was arranged by amazing Sabine Sasse, Managing Director of United Europe, a German NGO focusing on strengthening Europe that can ensure peace, liberty and prosperity for the next generations of Europeans. But from what I can tell you, from my experience, not only Europeans. Both Bintu and me are part of this NGO. As a young professional advisor at United Europe, I contribute to the discussion and shaping of the pan-European policies for engagement, cooperation and inclusiveness working on the climate, environment, sustainability issues. Those who have been following this podcast for a while might remember that I did an episode last November with other United Europe participants called Energy Transition and Climate Change, discussion with energy and sustainability experts. Check it out at your convenience. But back to the subject. I'm very excited Bintu joins us today at Sustainability Explored I can't wait to start our interview, anticipating a lot of interesting and exciting facts, news and ideas. But before we jump to our chat, you can use this moment to subscribe to the podcast where you're listening, to always be one step ahead with the sustainability news across countries and industries. All right, are you ready? Let's jump right into it. Hi everyone, I'm super happy to announce my guest this morning for our interview on sustainable or not mining. My first guest from Africa is Bintu Kamara. Bintu, I always ask my guests how uh, they start in sustainability, how is their journey going on, and please introduce yourself it's a, it's a very special day. Uh, as I said, first guest from Africa. I, I find it very important to give voice and diversify the guests and opinions and visions from across the world. So super excited to have you today with me. 
Thank you for joining. Please introduce yourself a little bit more for the guests and where you are in the sustainability, in your sustainability path. Hello, Anna. Thank you for having me here. And I'm really glad to be the first guest from Africa. My name is Bintu Kamara. I am a specialist in sustainability and social change activist from Guinea-Conakry. Guinea-Conakry is a country, a coastal country in West Africa. We are near Senegal, Ivory Coast, Mali, Sierra Leone, Liberia. So uh, how I started my journey in sustainability? Actually, I created an NGO called Evolution. We created it like four years ago. The NGO M to promote sustainability and uh, the, let's say sustainable development in islands and villages impacted by mining exploitation in my country. Because Guinea is, is, is the first bauxite exploiter in West Africa and in the world. Last year, we were the first before Australia and Brazil. So the mining exploitation is very huge in Guinea. We mostly exploit bauxite, gold, and diamond. So this is the main reason why I started the NGO and we started the NGO four years ago to help the indigenous people that are living in the mining region promote their culture, preserve their culture through the help of mining, conscious mining companies. Mm -hmm. I know in our pre-conversation you mentioned you were just uh, on the field trip uh, in that mining region, Boke, right? Where you were working on preserving the spirituality, the culture and language of the region. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I am coming from the mining region in Ukraine, uh, although it's about black coal. And, you know, when we were discussing with you just before, I realized we have this specific language too that is only present and recognized in that area. For example, lunch in the box, lunch box, uh, transportable lunch. People, the workers would usually take it from home because they, you know, they can go to the canteen. There is no restaurant around. They would take a pack a lunch box with them from home. And the meaning of how it's called, it's not called the lunch. The meaning is like a, a stop pack. So it means they stop their work to eat. In translation, it's a stop pack. You, you say this word anywhere else. For example, I'm, I was working at the bank a couple of years ago. And I'd say, oh, no, I took my stop pack with me. People would look at me like, what do you mean? Ah, yes, it's because uh, in where I'm coming from, we use this and that. Are there any specific words that you have in that region? So we have specific words, small story. Bouquet is the largest mining city of the country. Also the largest mining city of West Africa, but the Francophone West Africa. Bouquet is located in the northern part of Guinea. And this city has, today, has 16 mining companies that exploit bauxite. It's a really small city. Can you imagine 16 companies that are in a small city? And this city happened to host six out of eight endangered languages of Guinea. Wow. And these, yes, it's a pure coincidence. And these endangered languages belong to each different tribe. So the city has a lot of different tribes and all the endangered tribes of Guinea most of them, six out of eight, are in this city. It's not really a city. I'll say it's a region because it's very underdeveloped. 
even though all these mining companies are there. And this city happened to be my city as well, because I am from one indigenous tribe in this city. I grew up in the capital, which is Conakry, but my mother is from one indigenous tribe from that city. My father is from a different indigenous tribe from that same city. This is the main reason why I decided to focus my energy on the development of the indigenous people in the region of Bukit. And how we do that? We started by, uh, by promoting agriculture because agriculture is the main activities of the women in the region because it's a coastal area. They have many water sources and the climate is very nice, used to be very nice and comfortable, but now because of the exploitation, women cannot uh, produce enough vegetables or rice anymore because of the pollution of the air, the pollution of the water sources, and because of the, the, how the mining company came in the city and they brought people from the, the, the capital in the city, the, the city is now, the villages have almost disappeared because the, the mining company, when they settle in one area, they move the village, the, the population that are there, and they move them out to a different village that they usually manage for them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always because these are indigenous people they they have a, their heart in their land so even if you come and you displace them you might think it's okay or oh maybe we we give them a better life because they have a prettier house now or they have water well they can get well whatever however they want it doesn't work that way because they, most of them are animists and as you know animism is a, an ecological religion they are related to earth Anything they do uh, is related to earth, to water, to air, to sea. So they, they thrive better in where they live, not where they will be moved out. So this is why the animism, um, the religion of the indigenous is disappearing as well. Because when they move them out of their city, they, they lose their faith and they, they, they don't practice anymore what they used to practice, what their ancestors used to practice. So this is how we started with the NGO. This year, we decided to work alongside uh, two nonprofit organizations from the US. One is called Wikitown, the other is called Livington. With these two organizations, we decided to uh, create a project that we called the Preservation of Endangered Languages of Indigenous People in Bukit. As I said before, in Guinea, we have eight indigenous languages and six of them are in Bukit. <laughs> and this, among these six, among these eight, the first indigenous language, I mean, the most spoken among these indigenous language is my, from my tribe. My tribe is called Nalu tribe and the, the language is called Nalu as well. But I don't speak it either because we have only six million, no, 6,000 speakers. And this is the most spoken indigenous languages, 6,000. So I got involved in this project even more because it was my tribe. So I figured that I had to do something and I have to help them since they don't, they, they, they want to help themselves, but they don't know how to do, they have any way to do it because they live in a really, really, really remote area. So I partnered with these two organizations and then we decided to make, um, make a project. This project, how it will go. We started the project three months ago by documenting these indigenous language. We started with Nalu, 
and then we will go along with the other one. So right now we are documenting the Nalu language because it's disappearing. And the Nalu language is specifically found in the sub-prefecture of Kamfarande. This is one of the 10 sub-prefecture of Bokeh. And this prefecture is very remote, is near Guinea-Bissau. It's, it's by the sea, I'll say. So the Nauru language is found in the sub-prefecture of Kamfarande and on the islands of Tristao. Tristao are a group of islands. They are closer to Guinea-Bissau than to Guinea, but administratively, they belong to Guinea. And this island is an MPA, a marine protected area from UNESCO because it's very far and it's very, it's wonderful. You can still find dolphin, turtle that are on the sea, on the beach, very amazing. But since the, the area is very, very, very far from the city, it's, it's, it's far from Bokeh, it's six hour boat ride from Bokeh. So imagine they, they are impacted because they are far, but also because they are totally forgotten. And this island is the origin of the, the Nalu tribe, of my tribe. So the process is to document the Nalu language by going from house to house in these remote areas and asking the elders to explain to us what is the Nalu story, what is the culture, how is the language, and then we write down anything that we can. We try to make a dictionary. After making a dictionary, we try to introduce this small dictionary into primary school in these villages because the, the children doesn't speak the indigenous language anymore. They all speak French, only the elders, because it's the old language. Nalu language, Nalu tribe came in Guinea in the 14th century. So you imagine that it has to disappear now because it's very, very old. So we introduced the dictionary into primary school. After that, we make a sensibilization um, with the parents of the kids. We explain to them how, what is the importance of speaking their native language so that it doesn't die because the kids, doesn't, they don't speak it anymore. And then we, we publish this dictionary and the, all the documentation, video recording on internet so everyone can have access to it. This is how the American organization are helping me because they have a platform and internet where you can find over 8,000 or 10,000 languages. And that now they will help me publish the Nauru language in this platform. So this is the first project. The first project will be the, the preservation of the Nalu language. And then the second one is the preservation of the indigenous spirituality. Because we can preserve the language, but if they don't practice what they used to practice anymore, we don't call them indigenous and they, they, they will lose their identity. This is what we are fighting uh, for. So how this will go? We will do the same process. It's hard to document the spirituality because you cannot touch it. Actually, the spirituality of these indigenous people, they are most, most of them are animists. They believe in, in a, it's an ecological religion, I would say. This is how I call it. They believe in forests, in air, in water. They have spirit in these things, in water, in sky. It's hard to explain. So this is how they are impacted the most, because imagine when a mining company comes into this village, first of all, they will start polluting the, the water sources. These people cannot practice their religion as, as much as they can, because imagine if the river is polluted by petrol or oil or whatever, it's not pure anymore. 
they have to go all the way to a different village to get water or to pray for the water spirit. And then when the company comes, they identify a huge plot of land that they damage, I'll say. They don't really damage it, they just clear it so that they can construct their port, raffinery, or whatever. This is deforestation. Usually they have these, these tribes have their spirit in this, in this forest. For example, we can see it as a forest, but they don't see it like that. They see it as the, the house of their spirit. So because of deforestation, they lose their spirit as well. And because of air pollution, bauxite is a volatile um, dust. So it pollutes air a lot. Because of the pollution, the spirit that, uh, that is in the air also is chased away from the village. So there are different types of impact and all these impacts together make the, the, the indigenous people lose their identity because they don't practice their religion anymore. They have to go practice either Christianism or Islam, which they practice in the, city, in the city, but when they are back in their village, they go back to their real identity. So this is what we are fighting for. And this second um, work on the spirituality project, we are currently writing a paper uh, alongside the Harvard Divinity School, because I was contacted by them uh, like three, three weeks ago. They made a call for paper, and then they contacted me asking if I would like to propose something about the indigenous spirituality, because I'm working with them. And I said, okay, this is a great idea. So they told me that they needed to highlight my voice as a practitioner one, and then because the, these are the areas impacted by mining company, I should make a, a little study and propose to them so that they can highlight what is happening um, in this indigenous community following the opening, the, the creation of their new program at the school. The program is called Evolution of Indigenous Spirituality. Wow. Well, it seems like a lot of stuff is going on. When did you start the NGO? The NGO started uh, January 2017, three wow. years ago. So just three years and so much is going on already. You said there are 16 companies working in, in the mining. Are they international or local companies? All of them are international besides one. There is only one local. And this the, the local one uh, started two years ago but all of them are international. Most of, the, most of them are Chinese, and then American and Brazilian, but most of, I'll say 60%, 70% of them are Chinese. Wow. Well, I, I, the reason I'm asking, because my career, in fact, started with the, in the environmental journalism field, and uh, we traveled to Kosovo to investigate the lignite power plants. So also mining, but of lignite. Um, it's a coal, the brown coal, yes, brown coal that is not too much underground, 80 centimeters maybe underground, that, that's all, less than a meter. And there was the World Bank financing those mining activities. And under the World Bank, um, policy, environmental and social policy, they had to relocate people from the villages, give them the housing, accommodation in the cities. Then, of course, it went overboard uh, because it didn't have phase two, phase three, families grew and they were living still in the one or two 
piece uh, apartments, like two, two rooms apartments. Uh, but nevertheless, something was at, at least happening in the phase one. Is it the same in, in uh, Guinea? Is someone taking care of the environmental and social, implementing the policy, relocating people, you know, under a certain strategy, or is it chaotic and like you're on your own now? No, it's not. It depends. Some conscious mining company, usually the one that are in that are American, I'll say, or Westernized, they work as you said with the World Bank through IFC. We have a branch of IFC here. I actually wanted to mention them because they are the leaders in sustainability in mining area. They have a policy. I mean, even though the policy is not really respected by some mining companies, but they are trying because I have been working in collaboration with them since I, I myself, I'm doing the same job. I'm fighting for the same uh, right. So IFC is working alongside some uh, uh, mining company to promote sustainable development in mining area. They are doing their best, of course, but in Guinea, we don't know what is sustainability also. First, it's hard to explain to a population, okay, this is what you have to do to preserve the environment for the next 10 years or 20 or 30 years. We only see things as today. We don't have the, the capacity of imagining life in 10 or 20 or 30 years. But as you said, IFC is working alongside with some conscious mining company. But unfortunately, most of them, I'll say 80% of these company, they do not work with design office that implement social or environmental impact before they start exploitation. Right. Only, I'll say only American company does that with IFC because IFC is behind him, them or other, other companies that hire design company to implement social and environmental impact. There, there are a few of them that does that, but most of them, they don't do it. Or even when they do it, they just do it so that they can show to the, the government, okay, we did um, an environmental impact assessment before starting the exploitation. Mm -hmm. it, and then right away they start the exploitation, but they don't follow what the study they did, how they should work so that they don't impact the indigenous community. They don't really follow that. And I'll say the, the, another issue is that the mining, the, and the indigenous people, they don't know their right. They don't know how they should protect their environment, why they should be protected or preserved, or they don't know anything because they are not intellectual. There are barely schools in these villages. So they just see big miners coming to build beautiful houses. They think it's beautiful house for them. They relocate them. But then at the end, they find themselves stuck because at first when the mining company comes, they think that they will, they will have a job in this company. And this is, it's impossible because they, they never went to school. They barely speak French, so it's hard. It's not because the mining company doesn't want to hire them, but they have no skill, uh, no skill that are required to work in this mining company. So this is where they start clashing. They understand that these people, they didn't come to help us or to work with us. They came to gain benefit from our land. I'll say it's a wrong view as well because the land belongs to the country, doesn't belong to the indigenous community, but they have the, their say on it because they live there. They have been the one living there for so long. 
So you cannot just come and say, okay, because this place is, there is a lot of bauxite or gold here. We just come and then take everything. You guys are savages. Because sometimes this is what happened. So it's a, it's a little bit hard. This is why we need intermediate that will exp that knows the right of the indigenous community and that knows the right of the mining companies as well. Right. And is there this medi mediator kind of maybe an NGO working on legal stuff? There are NGOs. There are NGOs. Even the government have uh, different institutions that working to create a collaboration, I'll say, to open the, the dialogue between mining companies and indigenous people. But they are, as they are not co considered as indigenous, because, you know, the hard thing is in my country, we don't, since um, the, the official language is French, right? And then we have a lot of different local languages. We consider all these different local languages indigenous, even though you live in the capital because it's not uh, an occidental language, so we are all indigenous. Mm -hmm. So we don't, see, we don't put the difference between people that live in the capital and those that are in the village. We just say, oh, we are all Guinean, so why you guys should be better treated than us in the capital? So just accept it, mm -hmm. you see? So this is why I I'm fighting for their right because I want them to know these people are and if you read the chart of the United Nations what is an indigenous people what is an indigenous community you will understand that these people in this region are indigenous I'll, I don't, I'm not saying that we are more civilized but they still believe in something that we don't anymore this they are they, they have their identity we don't we lost our identity identity when we were colonized because these people they didn't really they were not impacted by colonization they, they, they are in a remote place they live in a remote area so they don't really know what was going on in the big cities in guinea so this is why i'm saying we are very different from them and we have to accept that and help them preserve that we don't have to impose them our belief like okay you guys have to be christian or muslim or you have to go to school you have to dress this way or that way they have their identity and i'm fighting so that they can preserve their identity and they can understand that the way that they live in many countries around the world they have a group of people exactly like them that are helped by the government so that they don't lose their identity Right. You mentioned earlier about the um, local community not being able to work because they are unskilled, not being able to work in, in those companies. Uh, is there any requirement to local at least a certain percentage of a local force, at either by the IFC or World Bank policy or from the local government of Guinea? There, there are some requirements, but it's, they are basic requirements. I know I work with some mining companies that are trying to be conscious, that are trying to involve the local force into the mining company. When I say local, not only local from the capital, because we are more educated and we are sometimes bilingual, mm -hmm. but the local from the region of, Guinea, of Bokeh, they are trying, but it's hard because imagine, Anna, the population, the indigenous population, they, as I said, they practice ecological religion. So most of them are fishermen or they do agriculture, they are farmers. They don't, they, don't, uh, they don't practice activities that can help them work in a mining 
uh, company. For example, they, they, it's hard for them to become mechanician or work in logistics or work on the computer. They don't, we don't have the same skills. This is how it's hard to work with them. So most of the time when the mining company try to hire them inside the company, uh, they are at the low level, like they, are, they have basic job, for example, security guard, you know, yeah. the type of stuff that they can understand fast because they don't live in the same, they haven't lived in the same environment as us. If, they, if there was a, a department in the mining company where they say, okay, this is the fishing department, like now <laughs> they will be hired, they will be able to hire a lot of them or this is the farming department you see but unfortunately we, they don't do the same they don't practice the same activities that are required to be able to work in this company right i was thinking about uh, yes i was thinking about security and uh, hr but even for hr you have you have no excel spreadsheets uh, i don't know how is the literacy by the way the literacy uh, rate in Guinea. Okay, I have to look up, but I, as I remember, I think I checked two years ago, we had 65% um, of the population is uneducated, 65. Mm. Can you imagine? Imagine in this region, only 5% of the population of this remote region are educated. So as you said, most of the time when they hire locals, it's in security or in community development agent because they need community development agent to collaborate with the indigenous. Because the indigenous, they, they sometimes they don't know how to communicate with, uh, with um, the mining, with the company representative. So they, they have to, these intermediaries, they have to hire people from the village so that these people can represent both parties' rights. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't go well, but it's, it's, it, they have to find people from the local indigenous group so that they can live at peace. Like a public relations, relations manager, sort of. Exactly. Wow. I recently watched uh, a, a short story about the island of uh, Nauru next to New Zealand, somewhere in the Oceania. The material phosphate i think phosphate was was something that they were extracting and they were not putting money back into the economy so years later there were also um, foreign companies involved people invest they, they were the the gdp was the highest i think in the world at some point uh, after the us and and china probably so what happened afterwards is that they excavated all the, 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 their resource and that was it. And now they are the poorest nation in the whole world. They have to import food, canned food. They have the largest um, percentage of obese people because it's like, like lots of sugar and, and, and stuff. The money was not put back into the economy correctly, I don't know, into the tourism, into I don't know, some, something else, putting the mind of people, raising the intelligence and, and building some other products. I am wondering what's happening in uh, Guinea in that regard. How is the money from that mining activities, those mining activities are put back into the form of tax, back into the economy? Or is it also, you know, big houses and uh, life is good for one generation, the next generation is gonna 
is gonna be stuck. Truth be told, uh, we had a boom in the mining exploitation, I'll say the last 10 years. So when I asked the same question, I said, okay, so what is the impact? I mean, when I say impact, not just big houses, we see big cars, all my friends are working in mining company. Now, what is the real impact on the country? Not only in the city where they live. They say, no, it's too soon because these companies, they came like five years ago, three years ago, which is true. Mm -hmm. Most of them came the past six to seven years ago. And then when they come, I mean, this is what they say, they have to do a social and environmental impact study before they start. Then when they start, there is a whole process. Okay, we have to do this and that and this and that. And then when they start the exploitation, when they start the exportation now, this is how the money should come back in the country. But still, the process seems so long that it, it, it's like, okay, you guys don't hurry. It's gonna take time for you to get back this money, but we are in the process of doing it. So I understand because I have a lot of friends in this mining company as well. The way they explain to me, they pay taxes as they should, goes back in the government and everything. But then it's really complicated because they have their part in it and the government also has its part in it. So we don't know who is, which one is telling the truth. Because the mining company cannot really say, okay, oh, I, I paid everything to the government, so don't, don't come at me. This is sometimes what they, they say to the indigenous people. We don't have to put electricity in this village or water. It's not our role. This is the government role, which is true. And then the government says, oh, you know what? You guys said that when you will go there, you will put electricity, even though it's our role, but you said you will do it. So it's the back and forth thing. As indigenous people, we don't know anymore who is telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And since me, I don't want to put myself in the position where I'm trying to condemn the miners because Guinea is a resourceful country. We have a lot of resources. We have gold, diamond, bauxite. We have to exploit them to be able to, to develop the country. I think this is, well, we say that agriculture might is the first uh, activity that will develop the country is true because we have a lot of water sources. We have even the largest river in West Africa take its source in Guinea. The, the river is called Niger. Mm -hmm. But since we cannot exploit this river, we have to focus on the mining side of the country. We have so many resources, we have to use them so that we can develop the country. But it doesn't mean that while by using these resources, we have to step on other communities so that we can develop the country, especially if the country is still not developed. Because if the country was today like Australia or Brazil, I don't think we will complain. The indigenous people will never complain because they see that things are changing. But it has been 10 years now. There are some companies that have been here for 40, 40 years, still nothing. Just uh, they are going back and forth with the government saying, no, 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 you said that you'll do this. This is not our job. The other one says, no, you, you said you was gonna do it. So this is, the, this is why the sustainability comes in. Because before we didn't know what was sustainability. Most companies, probably they knew, but they, they were not applying it because they, they knew that the, the indigenous people don't know what sustainability is. So we don't have to show you, to explain to you what it is. Because after all, you guys will be on our back and telling every time you have to do sustainable, sustainable project instead of just coming, take and then leave. 
So now because of IFC and I work also with the World Food Program, they implement sustainable project in the region as well. They have nothing to do with miners, but they, they, they implement this project because of climate change. They, they, they focus on different aspects of the area and then they decided to create project, agricultural project, fishing project and whatever. So this is why I was really happy when you contacted me to talk about sustainability in mining region like Guinea. It's very, it's a new uh, concept for us and we have to promote it. I think we have to promote sustainability more than we are promoting the exploitation, uh, the mining exploitation because the mining exploitation has been going on for a while now. Now we have to understand, okay, what can we do so that this exploitation doesn't damage the country? We have to create projects that will stay for a long, long time. And while creating this project, we have to in involve people that are suffering from this mining exploitation. They have to be involved in the process so that they understand their value, they don't lose their identity and they have to be helped by the miners as well. Yeah. On this note, how is the sustainability context in general in the country? Mining aside or included, what's going on in the country? So you're so far away, you have to tell us. Yes, so uh, in, this, uh, in the country, the, as I said, the sustainability concept is very new. Like when you say it in French, development Europe, it's so vague what is it what it is exactly like what can you do uh, what kind of development you can create that can save for so long it's kind of hard but you have to think it through for example um, why I say that it's uh, it's not not only it's new but we cannot promote sustainability all over the country because the country is still very virgin we have huge cities that are still like virgin cities. There's absolutely nothing going on. There, there, is, there are only houses and schools and that's all. There is no industrial activities. We don't have industrial activities in my country besides mining, but the mining also, it's only exploitation. We will have in two to three years, the very first raffinery, oxide raffinery in my village. So this is why the problem is it is urgent now because when this raffinery will come settle in my village and then it will start disturbing these indigenous people, it's going to be a huge issue. They are um, actually working on the environment impact of this raffinery and then they, they will build the raffinery in two to three years. So we have to start fighting now before they come build it because it's going to be hard when they build it and then we say, oh no, we don't want it here anymore. No, it's a lot of investment. It's an international uh, company, so we cannot just wake up and say, no, we don't want you guys here. They invest so much. But before they start investing, we have to explain to them what we want. So why the, the sustainability, is, it's not a, a big deal in the country because it's not an industrialized country. So the impact of a mining company is only in the region where they are, not in the whole country. For example, the, the two biggest region the largest region where we have mining company. One is in Bokeh, there is a second one. It's in, the, the, it's in central uh, Guinea. It's called uh, Hot Guinea. We have, this is where we extract gold. There are plenty, there are thousands of small companies there to extract gold. But the funny thing is, 
the bad impact of this gold exploitation is the artisanal exploitation is higher than the industrial exploitation because this literally the villager exploit gold by themselves they saw the mining company doing it and they understood that ah, i think this is kind of easy i can just go and dig and find gold so i'll do the same and the impact of that is there is no education in this area because kids they don't go to school anymore they are all in the morning from 6 a.m you will see kids three years or four years old going on the mining site to start digging to find gold with their parents so this area is very impacted as well but this the impact is different they are not impacted by the presence of mining companies they are impacted by the fact that they are exploiting themselves and they forget about what will happen when the the resource will finish because now they are not going to school they, 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 they are not creating different activities beside gold digging and this is really really bad so we have two types of impact one because of the, the the huge resource of gold because when there are too much gold even me if if there was gold in my my next to my house i'll say oh, you you know what let me go and check maybe i can find it too so because of the huge amount of gold in some areas in, in diamond you literally go, you dig and you find it, one. And the second one, because of the impact of the mining company, which is in working. Sometimes I ask myself, resource, is it a blessing or a curse? And I always think of Singapore. Uh, I have a classmate from Singapore and we recorded also with him about urban sustainability. He says, you, you see, 50 years ago, we had nothing. We were not even a country, we were a village. There is no uh, industry, there is no, uh, we didn't even have uh, clean water. They had to invent the technology or bring or buy the technology that would purify the water from the ocean and recycle it and so on and so forth. So all their resource was their brain. You look at the countries like Russia, full of oil, uh, of gas and you're like, where is the money? What happens? They still have, I don't know, toilets outside of the schools in, in certain areas. Like, unthinkable. It's 2020. And it's a kind of, a, you know, it's a European country. And sometimes I think, you know, having this resource, you say gold, I'm like, boom, unbelievable. The, these people have gold, you know, but is it a blessing or is it a curse? Maybe it's better to be put in the position where like, okay, we have nothing, guys. Let's invent. What can we do with our own hands to be profitable? Yes. I think the, the more resource there is in a country, the more it becomes a curse. Because in Guinea, we, we have almost everything, literally. We have 300 of uh, coastal territory, 300 kilometers. Can you believe, like we have water source everywhere. We still don't have electricity in the country. It's, it's, it's crazy. We don't have electricity. We are the very first exportator of bauxite in the world. Bauxite actually is the raw material of aluminum. Mm -hmm. And you know, we use aluminum in everyday life. So we are the very first exportator of bauxite in the world. We, have, we are among the, the, the largest exportator of gold and diamond. Yet, we have nothing in the country. So I 
totally think it's a curse. And this is how we have to transform this curse into a blessing. But how we can do that only when we involve the community around these areas. Because when we just come with our westernized mentality, like, okay, we come, we settle this here, we, we build a camp here, the raffinery here, it's a beautiful area, we work and then we leave. No. The, the, if the community is not involved, they will not see the added value of your arrival here. So you will still have the same mentality. Either they will strike every day, they will burn down the mining company, or they will just leave the area and then move to go somewhere else. And this is really bad. So this is, I think the, the action has to come first from the community, the indigenous community. They have to understand that they can do something as well. They can work with these, these mining, miners. They, they can collaborate with them if they are respected. But if they are not respected, it's going to be hard. And mm -hmm. I, I bet if they, they don't know their rights, they will not even uh, strike for, to have electricity in their village because they all think that because the mining companies is in their village, they should have electricity as these people have electricity in their camp which is not true. These people pay to get that electricity and they put gas and oil in their, in their, in their motors. They don't have to give you electricity. The, comp the country has to give you electricity. So you see, this is the type of the conflict there is between these two communities. So I think the indigenous people should be involved in the discussion. Well, when you say this, um, it's not the company that has to provide you with the electricity, it's the country why don't the government, the management of the country, unite with the mining company and, you know, do something out of a goodwill to the community where they are? The mining companies, in their turn, aren't they afraid that local community will get angry one day and block the road, for example? They can the put into their corporate social kind of a responsibility and look, we did this. Love us. Yes, they, have, they do have in their corporate social responsibility, they create a lot of different types of projects, which has impact, but small, small, very small impact because they don't, uh, I mean, from what they say, as I discussed with them, they say that they cannot invest too much money in giving, in, in, in caritative action when they are still exploiting. Like they came here to work, not to do. Uh, uh, charity. The charity part will come from the government because since they cannot handle the charity side, they pay their taxes so that they don't get in, in conflict with the community. They pay their taxes to the government, to the country. So this is the, the, the role of the, country, the government to come and then provide electricity, provide water, provide uh, infrastructure and whatever, which the government doesn't do for some reason. If they do it, they will say, okay, instead of paying this amount of tax, you just, we're gonna lower it, you pay this small amount, but you provide electricity for a few hours. And then the company does that. But one day when they stop doing it, they, they do stop doing it because they think, oh no, we paid too much, so it's done now. The community won't understand. They will just start striking. And then since there is no uh, communication between these two, these two parties, the communication are between min miners and government only. The community is left behind. 
So since there is no communication, it's become a huge conflict in a small village. And then the villagers burn down their, car, their cars, their houses. And then the, by the time we discovered that they, they, weren't, they were right, actually, when they said that they cannot give uh, electricity anymore, it's too late. So this is why I say that we have to create a community, um, an institution or a group of indigenous leaders that will come at the table while the government is discussing with these companies. So there will be these three parties together. They discuss at the beginning before they start anything. Yeah. Because if they, discuss, they, they, if they have the discussion, only the government and the mining companies and the communities left behind, it's going to be too late if the community wake up one day. It's going to be hard to defend. They say, oh, no, no, we did this, we did that. But why you didn't invite them? Or why you didn't create an institution to protect the indigenous rights so that this institution will be the intermediary between you guys and the villagers? Right. Discuss everything on the shore, as we say, before exactly. swimming. I see there a lot of social aspects that we discussed extensively. What can you say about the environmental uh, side of things? The environmental side of things is horrible, horrible in the region of Bokeh. I, I go to Bokeh, let's say, every two weeks. Since I came back from the U.S. Uh, four years ago, I started going to Bokeh. Let's say that's four years ago, right? In 2016. I remember when I went to Bokeh in 2016 and when I went to Bokeh, let's say last week, it's so different. You know why? Because in Guinea, we have two seasons. Two, uh, uh, we have the rainy season, six months, and the dry season is six months. In 2016, when I, I went to Bokeh, the rainy season like five months. Today, last week, the rainy season, I bet it's going to be four or three months only because of the pollution. The air pollution is incredible. Can you imagine that the rainy season should start at the end of May, from May to October? Now it starts in July. We have more dry season than rainy season because of the deforestation. And the deforestation, of course, because when the miners they go to the region, they, they totally clear a huge plot of land to start digging bauxite and then they go in other villages they clear these villages to build their camp their whatever hotel or whatever and then from when you when you do when you see the construction you will think oh my god this is what we call industrialization or development but then the impact will be totally on the climate which is really bad and when these miners they construct roads or bridges they tend to block some water sources. So for example, if in this, these three villages that are here, they used to go uh, get their water from one river, and then a mining company comes next to them, build a huge road and bridges and whatever, you'll see next year, the, the river won't exist anymore. And it's happened every six months, the rivers are disappearing every time. And now even the, the wild animals are coming out of the bush to come in the houses because they destruct their environment. Like snake, we have, uh, we have a particular species of uh, monkey and, and um, chimpanzee. 
Okay, we have a particular species of chimpanzee and monkey, and these chimpanzees are only found in the bush because they are not used to human interaction. They are very savage. So these chimpanzees are coming out of the bush now to come attack people in the village because they destroy their environment. And I'll say something about the spiritual side of it. One day I went to, I was discussing with a representative of a mining company. I came to, to propose a project that we could do to get that they would finance to help the community. And they said, oh, you know, you know, these people, these indigenous people, they, they just need money. Like they will create anything. They will say any type of lie so that we can finance them. And I said, how, how is that? He said, because last time um, when they came to their village, they, they made a, a meeting uh, and they told us that they don't want us uh, in, in their village anymore because the last time we, we dynamite a mine, you know, sometimes when they extract the bauxite, they have to put dynamite in the rock so that it explodes so they can extract the bauxite, right? He said, because few few weeks ago, we did, um, we dynamite a mine, and then they say that since we did that action, because the, the sound, the, the noise was so big, and they did it for a whole day, that the spirit of their land, the bad spirit of their land came out, and then the good spirit was chased away. So that since we did that, things are going really bad in their environment because they believe that the bad spirit comes out of the, of the land, of the ground, and then the, the good spirit was chased out. So we have to do something against that. And I said, and they says they started laughing. Like, can you imagine? Like, they still believe in spirit. And they say that we, we chased out their spirit because there was a huge noise. And I said, you know, it's, it might be true. You cannot understand because you don't practice their, their religion. But I think what they are saying is, there's, you can even connect the, the animism scientifically. These villagers, I asked them, I said, they said that your spirit left the village because they dynamite the village, right? They say, yes, since they did that, we, the kids are afraid now. Like they don't go out at night. They say that when they go out, they see bad spirit or the women that were, were pregnant, they gave birth. This is because of the noise, like besides the spirit aspect of it, the noise was so huge and so important. The, the, the miners, they are protect, they have protection when they do this type of stuff, but the villagers, they don't. Imagine you keep hearing the same exploding noise like a bomb, they hold for 24 hours. You will be traumatized. So since they got traumatized, I guess they said, okay, uh, like something is going on in the village we don't feel good anymore and this is because the bad spirit has come out from the land you see the, the relation and it's totally true but they couldn't understand that 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 aspect of it and they don't understand because again they don't they are not in relation with the they don't know the spirituality of the indigenous people they don't know their tradition they don't respect it this is why they were laughing at it and they make it a laughing matter Anywhere they go, they talk, oh, these people, they need so money so much. Now they're talking about the spirit left the village. You see how it's sad? It's a great story, I should tell you. And you know, when people, when, I'm, when I say sustainability, in the mind of people, of the general public, I only focus on environment. I say, no, it's also a lot of a social aspect, both from the side of community and from the side of workers, right, of, of any given project. And when we say the community, we 
usually focus on the roads, the electricity, the infrastructure per se. But then there is also this cultural aspect that you just mentioned, you know? So sustainability in a broader sense has also, does have to include the, um, the cultural side, cultural, spirituality. People should be free to exercise their religion, whatever it might be. I might agree, disagree. You know, someone might find it, ah, what do you mean? But that's, uh, that's the case. We have a lot of anecdotes like that in the village. I remember there, was a, there is a mining company with whom I had to work a few years ago. And when they came to build their port um, in a particular village, they started clearing the land. They just came with their Western mentality. Okay, this we have to measure here, there, whatever. Like they don't communicate with the community. They say, oh, can we start this today? But they already have their plan. They don't take in action the, I know it's hard to understand their spirituality. Like you never know what they're gonna say, but it's always best to ask, do you guys think we can start this action when and how we can start the process? You have to involve them or they will put you in trouble. So this company, they came, they cleared a land and they started building the port. But then the, as more as they're building the, they build the port, they clear the land, they clear with the machine, the tractor and, and the tractor belt. And one day the tractor came, they started cleaning a, a particular part of the land and the, 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 the indigenous people came and said, don't touch this place. This is where our spirit is, especially in these trees. And they said, no, no, this place we already, like it's in our map, the country already the government already gave it to us. And these people said, okay, whatever, they left. The guys started clearing. There was a huge uh, attack of uh, bees. The bees came, they attacked all of them. Two of them died right away. And then they understood that this is, this is like, it's huge. They told us to not do it and maybe they are mad at us. They went uh, to do something and then the bees came out. And there were two, two people died at, at that time when they were cleaning. And then they went back, they had to process everything. And then they called the community to say, okay, so how can we do? Because we, cannot, we have to work on this place. We need this, this plot of land. How, how are we going to do? And then the community said, okay, next time when you guys come, start working, doing stuff without asking us, this is what, that, this is, what is going to happen. Next time you have to involve us because we have a special prayer that we can do so that the bees doesn't come out or something bad doesn't happen to you guys. And then this is how they, they went, they brought priestess from their indigenous, from their spirituality, they brought priestess from far away from the village. And these priestess, they came, they pray so that, they, they pray so that the land will accept the foreigners. And then after the prayer, they continue cleaning the land and nothing happened. You see, since then, this, this, this company actually, wherever they are doing any type of engineering work, they always have to refer to the community to ask their, their, if they, they can start and when and how. Yeah, their help. Well, yeah, I always say, you know, don't come. We have a saying, um, uh, don't come to the foreign church with your own... Uh, you know, with what you have. 
when you're dealing with some area, the local, the locality, the community where you're not native, believe me, they know better how to live and why they live the way they, they do. You know, don't come in a foreign church with your own statements. It's not going to help you at all. And this is a perfect example of, you know, collaboration, trust and respect as well to the local community, you know, you know better. You tell us how to be and how to behave in your home because after all, we are all just guests. What do you wish changes in, in the context, in the landscape of sustainability? The, like the first, maybe top three things that would uh, change uh, to ease your work. What I wish the most is, uh, first, since the country uh, doesn't have an institution that protects the indigenous community, so it's hard for the miners even to, to respect the, the indigenous community because the government doesn't. It, it's not that they don't respect, but there is no policy or rules or whatever so that they have to protect this spe specific community in this region. So first, what I wish is that we create an institution or a group of leaders, indigenous leaders, that could be the mediator between the government and the, com the indigenous community and the mediator between the, the companies and the indigenous community. And that could represent the indigenous community worldwide, the, the Guinean indigenous community worldwide. This is my first wish. The second wish is that beforehand, I wish this group participate in the, the, the designing of laws on, on how the miners should exploit their mine, whatever, whatever it is, what type of mine, even if it's bauxite, gold or diamond, the indigenous community has to participate in the discussion. And then the third one is, as you were talking about the corporate social responsibility, I wish that the miners could involve the indigenous community protection in their corporate social responsibility because they only think it has to be connected to infrastructure, build a house, uh, build a, a hospital, build a school, build a whatever, bridges. It's always an, an engineering work, but it can be beyond that. I want them to accept the identity of these people as they are different their identity, their culture, their religion, their language. Can you imagine in some, in some mining companies, even the community development agent doesn't speak the local language of the indigenous community? Like how you guys can understand each other? But <laughs> it's connected from that community? That's, that's what I thought. Yes, so now, now, but still in some companies, like new companies, since they only want to work with people they know, they will bring someone from the capital because this person is Guinean. They think, oh, you are Guinean, so he can understand these villagers. He's Guinean, but he doesn't, he doesn't know, like he doesn't know, he's not an indigenous. One, he's not an indigenous. Second, he has never lived in this type of environment. So he will come also, with his uh, different mentality and start to mediate between these two parties, which is going to be hard. So yeah. I really want the, both the government and the companies to acknowledge 
the existence of the indigenous community and the preservation of their right, their culture, their religion, their language, etc. Yeah, wow. Well, six language, uh, six indigenous languages, you said, out yes. of eight are only in yes. one region? Well, yes. it's easy to get confused. Yeah, but unfortunately, they are disappearing. Some of them, uh, for example, uh, there is one language that's called uh, Pukur. They only have, from the UNESCO Atlas of Endangered Language, they only have 600 speakers. 600 that's it. So, and they live in a really remote village somewhere that we don't even know where it is. So you see, it's, it's, we have to protect them. It's not because there are few that we, we don't have to forget about them. No, if we protect them, if we help them, maybe there will be more. Who knows? They will be interested in, in, in promoting their own culture. But if they see that no one cares about them, they will be even shy to say, oh, I am from this tribe. You know, because it happened to me also. I am from one indigenous uh, uh, tribe. When I was young, I, I would never say it because I find it so like, oh, you are a savage. So I used to say, oh no, I'm from the capital. I'm here and there. But I'll never say where I come from exactly. It's only when I went to university and I saw, I, went, I used to live in New York. I saw how people were so proud of their origin. Like even if they came from deep down in Amazonia, in Amazonia, they would say, oh, I'm from this area in Amazonia, whatever. And I'm here trying to act new, no, I don't know, indigenous people. When I came back, I was like, okay, I have to create an NGO that will fight for the sustainability of the indigenous community. And I am proud to come from two different tribes of indigenous people, where one is disappearing. And I have to fight so that it doesn't disappear while I'm here. And it's a shame that I don't speak the language. My parents don't speak this indigenous language anymore. I, I know I'll probably never speak it because I'm so, too old to understand, but I want my kids to speak it. Girl, you rock. That's all I can say. <laughs> Let's celebrate diversity. <laughs> Finally, yeah. at the end of, I, I learned a ton from you today and I can't wait to wrap up this interview and go, you know, read about Guinea, about this region more and more, about bauxite as well. Uh, I didn't know, for example, it was a raw material for aluminium. So tons of new discoveries awaiting me today and further on. <laughs> At the end of every episode, I ask my guests to share either a piece of advice or a book or a movie recommendation to dig deeper in the topic. What would you suggest? Uh, so actually, yesterday I was re uh, reading some, um, because I really like to read quotes, discover quotes from uh, around the world. I have a challenge, like I have to memorize one quote a day that explain the whole day or this particular situation. So I, I read this particular quote like a few years ago. And then I, I, yesterday as I was looking, I found it again. I'm gonna read it to you. It's an indigenous quote. It's an, a quote from an indigenous uh, leader from uh, America. It's a nat native indigenous leader. I don't know who it is. So it says, when the last tree is cut down, the last river poison, the last, Fitch caught the only will the man discover that we cannot eat is money. I don't know if I said well. It means um, when we cut the last tree, 
the last river uh, uh, is poisoned, the yeah. last fish is cooked, we will only discover at that time that we cannot eat money because this is the only thing that left. So I think this sum up sustainability. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a great, great, great quote. It's true, you know, it, it is sustainability and it's, it's in the mindset of, it's against this mindset of uh, exploding the resource to the ground and leaving and going to, to live somewhere else. Just like you said, we're here, we're building fancy houses and then we just go somewhere else and you stay there. No, no, no. That's the notion of sustainability. Thank you so much, Bintu, for your time today and for sharing this uh, vision from Guinea, from, how do you call it, uh, West, West Africa, right? Yes, West Africa. You don't add West, North, uh, South, anything? No, just West. <laughs> West Africa. It was very insightful to talk to you and I'm definitely going to read uh, about your country and mining and and see maybe how I can contribute to your NGO, you know, never know. Thank you so much, Anna. I was really glad to be able to share my view on uh, the mining uh, and sustainability issue in Guinea. And uh, I don't hesitate to contact me anytime you want to uh, make another podcast about something else related to sustainability. I'll be glad to share a view, an African view of it. That's cool. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. I so much appreciate you taking the time to join us today to learn from this conversation. I hope you loved listening to this episode as much as I loved working on it. If you have any questions for me or Bintu, please don't hesitate to reach to us on LinkedIn. We are both easily approachable, this I can guarantee you. If you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, share on your social media, leave a review on the platform you're listening on. We are now available on 70 plus platforms. This is incredible. Reading your review will make me over the moon happy. And on top of it, your honest feedback will help me improve the podcast, improve the certain issues that you might point out. If you review the podcast on our Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person. This I can promise you. I always suggest some other related episodes, but now nothing even remotely related comes to my mind. We didn't cover anything similar in our previous episodes. This is how this one came out so unique. Let's just celebrate it for one moment. And then I invite you to check other episodes, anything that you might find interesting for yourself on this podcast that speaks to you. We have a lot of interesting interviews covering a range of topics, bad sheets, events, sustainable fashion, tourism, economy, anything that is there, is there for you to, to listen and to learn. And finally, reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions or suggest guests or topics that bug you, you know, uh, that you would like to, you would like me to cover in the future. 
I'd also love to mention at the end that we now have a YouTube channel where most of our conversations are sitting in the form of video, so you can even virtually meet myself and the guests. So this was Sustainability Explored, episode number 54, and me, your host, Anna Chashina. Thank you again for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye. Thank you.